0: Of um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations. A lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally
0: contradictory and there are antagonisms there? And um, you're always
1: uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co host, Matt Bernico.
1: I'm your other co host, Dean Deloff. And boy, am I glad that Lent is over. Easter's over, and Jesus has freed us to talk again about socialism.
0: That's right. Don't get me wrong. I love Lent, I love Easter, but I do love that it's over. I love that we're free from the burden of having to produce content around those topics in particular. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we were starting to become, uh, we're drifting way too close into theology territory, and I'm glad to get out.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, it was fun. I learned, I think I learned a lot of things. I have read the Bible more than I probably ever have in my entire life. Um, (laughs) no, not really just kidding, but, um, (laughs) it was fun, but it's over now. We can talk about other things. So we're going to take a break from theology. We're gonna take a break from the Bible, I guess a little bit. Um, we're, gonna, we're just going to take a minute to talk about another idea that gets us kind of excited on this podcast, participatory planning and socialism. That's right, folks. We love meetings. We love rules. We love um, <laughs> highly regimented uh, sort of steps to taking, taking part in our government. Um, you might remember a while back on the podcast, we did an episode about 21st century socialism in Venezuela. Really briefly, uh, if you don't remember, <laughs> participatory planning is an approach to building socialism that decentralized the government and then hands over the power to the people pretty directly. In Venezuela, it's like, you know, giving people uh, power through the communes, um, which are a part of how just the government works there, which is pretty neat. So there are a lot of experiments with, with participatory planning around the world, um, but one we haven't really talked about much on our podcast is in Kerala, India. Dean, do you want to talk about Kerala?
1: I do. Kerala is a really fascinating place. It is a state along the southern coast of India. It has a really fascinating history of communist governments and coalitions leading the state and also kind of trading off with non-communist governments and coalitions. Um, There's kind of a weird like (laughs) uh, history of ping-ponging back and forth. Uh, But the first communist government was elected in Kerala all the way back in 1957, which is a pretty interesting time to have a democratically elected communist government. And since then, communists and their coalition government, which is the LDF, have been uh, competitive, if not dominant, in a lot of elections. And like we said, winning uh, government space um, in a variety of other contexts. And most recently, in 2021, the LDF won uh, a re-election campaign in Kerala, which made it the first time that they were elected twice and that that any government coalition was elected twice in, I forget how long, but uh, anyway, a a kind of rare moment of people expressing trust in the party and in in any governing coalition to continue governing. So it's a very fascinating place with an interesting history, but it also has a really neat uh, model for doing socialism, and we'll talk a lot more about it. Um, It is uh, called the People's Plan Campaign. And to mark the victory of the LDF in Kerala recently and the successes of their pandemic response as well, a guy named TM Thomas Isaac, who was uh, in the finance ministry in the Kerala government, the communist government, wrote a new book called Kerala, Another World is Possible. And Matt and I decided we got to get it. We got to learn what's going on in this really fascinating place. And what's really cool about the book is that it demonstrates the ways that real socialists have addressed this current moment that we're living through right it talks about uh how they've handled the pandemic it also talks about the participatory planning planning and it gives you kind of like a a snapshot of the history leading up to that moment so it's a nice little summation so given all that it's a good opportunity for christians on the left to follow along and think a little bit maybe about how we could engage all this and learn from a very cool very unique experiment in how to do socialism
0: yeah totally there's a lot to say about the politics of Kerala and two dudes who've never even been to India probably aren't the (laughs) ones to be saying it. We'll say that at the top of the episode here. Uh, There's nothing like having a podcast and constantly discrediting yourself. I think that's a good idea. Um, But just the same, there is like a really interesting history of Christians that are involved in and against sometimes (laughs) (laughs) leftist politics in Kerala. And uh, we wanted to kind of like bring this all together to talk about the cool stuff we read in this book, but also talk about the Christian angle too. So You know, we are credible in some ways, (laughs) if you think about it. (laughs) If you squint your your eyes just right, I think we look like two reputable sources. I'm sure we've
1: talked about things that we're less qualified to talk about (laughs) than this in particular. That's probably true. (laughs) That
0: is 100% true. So anyways, in this episode, we're going to talk about how cool participatory planning is, uh, but also make some historical notes about Christians involved in Kerala's politics along the way. Um, Okay, so before we talk about Kerala, Specifically, let's talk about participatory planning or this particular like arrangement of socialism, mm-hmm. because it's, it's different than what I think people oftentimes think when they think about socialism. Um, Dean, what comes to mind when someone says a socialist revolution? What, what comes to your mind? What, paint me a word picture of what socialism means for you.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, okay, two different questions. You said first, socialist revolution. What comes to mind for me for that is uh, historical revolutions in countries like Russia, China, Cuba, Vietnam, right? Uh, Revolutions that are massive social upheavals. And then also face huge burdens of trying to figure out what to do, how to build a socialist country, both in the midst of civil war and then also beset by all kinds of other challenges. Uh, So that's what I think about when I think about socialist revolution. When I think about socialism, uh, I guess I think when most people hear, especially the word communism they think of massively bureaucratized states, right? That's the the sort of the Papers, Please video game <laughs> is the idea, right? That uh, there's a, a handful of uh, unnecessary rules. There are people at the top who are kind of... Um, dictating it all and you know there's actually some truth to that picture <laughs> of uh, especially Soviet communism for sure uh, highly bureaucratized in some problematic ways but um, you know it's, it's maybe bigger than that so I think most people think about socialism or communism at least in that bureaucratized way uh, for me though when I think about socialism I think about people's power and you can get people's power in lots of different ways I think sometimes you can actually do some stuff with bureaucracy uh, but you can also get it in a bunch of other ways too and I think that's what I love most about participatory planning. It's like one more way in which people have tried to achieve a socialist division, right? Of equity and, and justice for, uh, for all people in a society. Is that a good enough summary? What do you think, Matt?
0: Yeah, it's a pretty good one. So, okay. People, someone says communism, someone says socialism. They think of, you know, guys with guns and, and, you know, gals and non-binary <laughs> people with guns too. Everyone's got guns in these great revolutions. <laughs> And they got tanks and they're in the jungle and whatever and like you said, there's civil war going on and there's also like um, You know the massive societal transformation lots of like sort of messy conflicts and also Dean like you said some um, very boring and maybe rigid bureaucratic structures sometimes, but what if uh, We had a type of socialism to tell you about that didn't rely on most of those things.
1: Oh, I'm intrigued
0: yeah, yeah, and instead, uh, you can win it through an electoral victory, and it's still pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know. It's not very It's better than Bernie Sanders, I guess. Is what I'm here to say <laughs> it's a it's a socialism that is not uh, n- not a, a guy from you know Vermont in the the Democratic Party. Um, okay, so we're gonna talk about participatory planning a little bit more discreetly here. Um, Here's uh, a bit from Martin Harniker on the topic Um, again Like I said Martin Harniker a Chilean political theorist who's like, I don't
1: know the theorist of participatory planning, I guess. Maybe that's not quite right, but that's how I think of her, at least. I think in terms of Latin America, just to, I guess, uh, build that up a little more, I think you're right to identify her that way. She was a a significant advisor to Hugo Chavez, who built a participatory planning model, you know, not by himself, but (laughs) with others in Venezuela. So I think (laughs) she is certainly like a, a major theoretical architect of how this actually operates in that continent.
0: Totally. Well, here is a bit from Marta Harnacker in her book, A World to Build. The big challenge for these movements, um, she's talking about Venezuela in particular, but 21st century socialism, I guess, more broadly. The big challenge for these movements is to advance towards socialism when they have conquered only the government, a strategy that conflicts with the classic Marxist vision, which has traditionally insisted on the need to destroy the bourgeois state as in the revolutions of the 20th century. Those revolutions born from civil wars or imperialist wars not only mastered but destroyed the inherited state apparatus, so it is understandable that some sectors of the left feel disoriented when they find themselves in such a different situation today. Furthermore, electoral success, um, if you can get it, only captures part of the state. Control of executive power often initially comes without control of the parliamentary or judiciary. In addition, other capitalist-dominated institutions like finance, mass media, and the military remain intact. The issue then is how to work toward conquering these other areas of power, winning more people to the transformative project, and ensuring that every step they participate in building their own destiny. And then I'll, uh, one more more bit here before we kind of move on. If revolutionary cadres take over the existing state, they can use their power to begin building the foundations of the new institutions and political systems needed to replace the old state. Above all, they can be they can begin creating spaces for popular protagonism, preparing people to exercise power in all aspects of their lives. But history has shown that the heavens cannot be taken by storm, that a protracted period is needed to travel from capitalism to the new society that we want to build. Okay, so that's kind of a lengthy quote here from her book, but it's a good one. So the idea behind um this particular theory of socialism, or like societal change, is not uh, is is not like an all at once you know um, <laughs> struggle that re- results in a civil war or a protracted people's war or any kind of military conflict necessarily um, though I guess it could be a part of it uh, but instead sort of like electoral victories that take over pieces of the government at a time um, and along the way transforming that government to be something um, different that the people can actually participate in. Um, a pretty interesting, I think, um, model for seizing state power, uh, because what you're doing is, you know, you're winning, you're winning it piecemeal and transforming it as you go, rather than kind of like, like she says, taking heaven by storm or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it it's a a great description for I think like the way that they practiced statecraft in Venezuela, but also how I think it's even a better description I think though of Kerala and, and what that situation actually looks like. Um, though, instead of practicing statecraft in Kerala, it's more of like a devolution, right? It's a sort of empty, it's a kenosis of the government. They're emptying <laughs> right. it out. They're, uh, they're taking those big bureaucratic doors, swing them wide open and giving all that power to the people through some pretty interesting means. Um, yeah, I don't know, Dean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's good. It, it might help even to contextualize a little further talking about Harnacker's sort of way of setting the stage here because, for Harnicker I found this book so fascinating. I mean, we did a whole episode on it, so I guess you can hear more about it there. But what I think is so interesting is she herself traveled from being a, a Catholic left uh, activist in Chile. That's kind of where she started uh, to then she started with Louis Althusser, um, a major communist theorist in France, and then came back to Latin America as like a pretty doctrinaire hardline Marxist for a long time. Um, she lived in Cuba for a long time um, and had a significant role in that country. And as what was called the the pink tide started sort of crushing all of Latin America, which is like, Basically, a bunch of sort of lefty governments of different stripes were all like elected in the period of like 10 to 15 years um, across the the continent. Uh, as that was happening, she really took the time to like understand that process and think through what it means. So I think what's so fascinating to me about Harnaker sort of playing with these ideas or observing them and and contributing to them, is it's trying to find a way of building socialism when you know that you're not going to get a revolution, right? Like, she has been part of a revolutionary country. She lived in Cuba. She also was part of uh, Allende's uh, experiment in Chile of elected socialism that ended badly, right? was overthrown by a coup. So she's trying to observe, like, let's say... You can't have a whole revolution uh, overnight in a country like, I don't know, Ecuador or Venezuela even or Bolivia, right? Uh, All these other countries. But maybe you can get your hands on some pretty significant levers of power. What would you do with that? Uh, What could you do with it? And I think that is also a way more realistic uh, set of questions for socialists today, especially in countries like Canada and the US, where, let's face it, there's not a revolution uh, on the horizon. But maybe if we got extremely lucky (laughs) and worked extremely hard, maybe you could capture a part of the state somewhere, you know, in these uh, in the belly of the beast. And what would you do? So I think that's what I find so exciting about uh, these experiments in the global south is if you're a person reading in the global north it's like uh they've already you know traveled quite far down this road and there's a lot to be kind of gleaned from all that
0: yeah that's right i mean there is a sense in which this is like a very serious type of democratic socialism um you know because it's it's it hinges on winning an election and and then transforming what you've won and it's cool man i don't know to me (laughs) it's really it's really exciting because it does seem extremely Possible, uh, though you're right. It would take a lot of hard work. It would take a lot of luck. But at the end of the day, this is like a question of organizing and like mm-hmm. winning local elections, and then like doing something with it. And and exactly what you're saying, though, right? You're like winning an election and then figuring out like what is the socialist thing to do with the power I've gained, um, right? And I think what's cool though is that in this particular arrangement, it's not like like the the answer to the question like what's the socialist thing that you do, um, it's not like create a giant bureaucracy it's not Mm -hmm. uh it's not i don't know do something like really radical yourself as sort of like the singular elected socialist protagonist in office or something instead the answer is always like transform the state so people can actually be involved in politics Mm -hmm. and that's super compelling in a way that like i don't know being being you know your own <laughs> Being the Lennon of Ohio is, right? It's, it's, it's way more compelling because, like, it's about empowering people to make decisions in their lives rather than making decisions for them and creating some kind of, like, new, I don't know, governmental organization or something. Uh, to me, that seems kind of exciting.
1: Yeah. Uh, although the Lennon of Ohio does sound like an extremely awesome emo song that has yeah. yet to be written. Yeah. Um, It'd be but, good. Uh, <laughs> I think it's also interesting, too, because, um, this model or this way of thinking, participatory planning, participatory socialism, um, I think that it's cool to see that people kind of come to this conclusion from pretty different parts of like socialist history or kind of socialist traditions. So, for example, um, in Venezuela, like the experiment in that country is not perfect, right? Like even the the Communist Party of Venezuela, for for example, is like at times, a, uh, sort of, um, like, part of the, the PSUV, the, the ruling socialist party, uh, at times they work with the PSUV, and then at times they form a leftist opposition to the PSUV, right? So it's not like every leftist in the world is kind of on the same page, but nevertheless, like, the Communist Party of Venezuela is, like, very into the communes, right? Like, the, the disagreements are, are otherwise, or like, uh, Hugo Chavez was not a um, a Leninist, or at least I don't know, not in the way that other people are. Uh, but nevertheless, in Kerala, you have something like the Communist Party of India, uh, Marxist, which is coming out of a certain kind of Leninist tradition of its of its own kind. Um, and it, too, comes to this kind of conclusion, but again, in some different ways. So I think I don't know Well, I guess the reason I'm saying that is you mentioned, Matt, this is like a radical democratic socialism, which I think is exactly right. Um, but it's also like not democratic socialism in the way that we think about it, even in like the U S or Canada, like right. it's a, it's a democratic socialism in the sense that it is like, you know, ramping up the democratic impulse in the tradition of socialism and, and Marxism too, uh, in most cases. So just a really neat way of like, uh, I don't know, bringing a lot of different left-wing threads together under a, a structural kind of change.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, like democratic socials in the united states right it's like it's seeking to get people in office and that's cool and good and i'm i think they should <laughs> right but there's like there's more on the line i guess in this thinking there's a more a more radical type of democracy i think uh um, yeah. at stake here than getting more dsa people elected or something which again is fine nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> but like but what if we got people elected to office who also said And now the people, (laughs) I will empower them through the the government. Uh, Pretty rad.
1: Right. So, all right, we should turn to Kerala here in just a moment. But uh, before we do, um, Marta Harnaker herself took a really strong interest in Kerala. So she passed away not too long ago. That's why I'm talking about her in the past tense, I guess. But uh, she uh, writes some interesting pages about Kerala in this book. And, uh, one thing really stuck out to me and I thought maybe this would be a good way of leading in and also maybe pausing to bring in a bit of a weird Christian angle right off the bat here. So she says, uh, during the campaign in Kerala talking about like building this, uh, people's plan campaign, they applied the principle of subsidiarity. That is anything that an entity at a lower, more local level could do should be done at that level. And only those tasks that needed the intervention of higher levels of administration should be delegated upward. Ooh, that's so, a Catholic idea. Yeah, I know. Uh, extremely Catholic idea and very funny to see it in this book. So, uh I'm not sure if you know, I I think this is pretty clearly coming out of Harnaker's own experience in the Catholic Church, interested in the language of Catholic social teaching and so on, although she was not uh Uh, a Catholic sort of, well, I don't know, not a a practicing Catholic thinker by this point in her life. But it's really fascinating that she chooses that term subsidiarity and explains it in that way, which is totally consistent with the way the the Vatican talks about subsidiarity as a way of describing what they're doing in Kerala. And uh, there are two reasons I really like that. The first is, subsidiarity is like a constant nagging problem in Catholic social teaching. Uh, Nobody ever knows what it means, and no one can ever tell you what it means. (laughs) It's like sort of a vague concept that feels like it points to something specific, um, and in principle it kind of does, but like in practice people ha- give all kinds of weird examples when they try to parse it out so for example like in the United States I've heard people talk about subsidiarity saying everything from like yeah it's it's like we have a municipal government and a state government and a federal government and you know you don't want to get all that messed up and then we've got the family in the mix there or whatever um, so you get this kind of like basically a baptism of how the US political structure is organized right. so it's everything from that to like a more radical sort of Catholic worker thing where it's like you know, we don't need the state to uh, to do this particular action or something, we can do it as a local Catholic anarchist community, right? And, and with all the good and bad that maybe that that entails. Uh, so what I love about Harniker using subsidiarity and pointing to Kerala is she's like, no, this extremely specific way <laughs> of thinking about uh, transforming government, that is subsidiarity. And I like that a lot. So that's the first thing I like. Um, it sort of puts some, some meat on the bones of that concept. Uh, and the second thing I like is that um, it also transforms the way we think about subsidiarity, right? Like when we have a sort of concrete example like Kerala, it makes us say or like, at least it makes me think like if I was ever going to use the term subsidiarity, which I often try to avoid for the reasons I just described. Uh, now it would be very easy for me to be like, oh, yeah, when I talk about subsidiarity, I mean something kind of like this, like what they're doing in this real part of the world. And that helps me to kind of deepen my understanding of the principle. Anyway, uh, very cool that she uses that term. And I think it should be a boon to like Catholic people on the left to be able to point to a place like Carol and say that is what we're about
0: yeah i mean um <laughs> what you said earlier though about uh baptizing the way that the united states political system works with the municipality on up is such a funny thing though because like <laughs> man if if that's what you thought subsidiarity was I don't know how you could believe in Catholic social teaching because it's just (laughs) like (laughs) it's such a great example of how that doesn't work. I mean, it's a it's a system designed to obfuscate the point and never be able to take care of anything at any level. So it's like uh, whatever, (laughs) I guess. Right. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I think we talk about it more specifically here in a minute. I think subsidiarity even makes more sense in terms of people's planning. But um, I think this is this is the right this is the right definition of subsidiarity. This is the one that I like for sure.
1: Yeah, and I guess I like it too because, you know, we've talked a handful of times on the show in the past about Catholic social teaching has a lot of contradictions and problems and issues, and Pope Francis even is ready to say that, so I appreciate that about him. Um, it is not like a extremely clean, unified set of, you know, programs that you could just implement in a society, even though some people wish that it was. Uh, but there are these radical moments in Catholic social teaching, and I think it's actually worth pointing out what they are and what you can do with them. So, you know, the preferential option for the poor, for example, is maybe the the big one. Um, solidarity. These are like parts of Catholic social teaching officially that make a big difference. And subsidiarity is also part of it. And I I find, I guess, that it's almost always invoked as a way of, uh, de-radicalizing people or being like look, I'm not talking about a revolution. All I really want is this kind of subsidiary model where we have all the institutions kind of working in harmony, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, sure, let's talk about that. But let's talk about it in this specific way. Like right. leaning into the radicalism of subsidiarity by pointing to Kerala is such a a cool little subtle nod, I think, that Harniker is, is pointing to here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's talk more about this Kerala book that we mentioned um, the top uh, it's by TM Thomas Isaac who was the finance minister in Kerala and it is a cool book I like it a lot um what's let's, let's start off here at the very at the very cover the graphic design for the cover fantastic I love it it's so got uh, some an, a nice blocky italicized font uh, that says Kerala and it's in red and <laughs> it looks good um uh, listen, I know podcasts are not a great place to talk about the visual medium, but uh, I did it, and I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> you can look it up online; it looks great. Uh, the book is super neat, though. It tells you about kind of the history of uh, politics in Kerala, and then it taught, which is illuminating because I I know I didn't know anything about India, kind of coming into this, <laughs> which is my own problem. Um, but anyways, I learned a lot of things about um, sort of the <laughs> the ways that. Um, I don't know, like the the Gandhian movement is complicated and how communism is complicated and how the church is complicated, <laughs> lots of complicated things in India. Uh, but they're really, uh, really neat. And then the book kind of tells you um, maybe more details about like what all those complications look like politically on the ground. And it kind of gives you some in-depth insights into what uh, participatory planning looks like in Kerala. Um, so let's let's start off here, though, uh, from this Thomas Isaac book. Um, talking about the People's Planning Campaign. Uh, so he says this, If the People's Planning Campaign was indeed a political project of the left in Kerala, how come the non-left governments in Kerala continue the project? How do the local governments under the non-left political formulations perform within the PPC framework? This was precisely the challenge. How to design a program platform that could accommodate a diversity of views in multiple party formations? What democratic decentralization achieves... Is the creation of a democratic space at the local level for popular mobilization and democratization who would occupy this space and how they would utilize it is a matter of political of political contestation and the outcome would be open so this is kind of like what the terrain looks like in kerala and i think it's really um a really critical part of the story right so like we said at the top of the show in 1957 a communist government gets elected to Kerala, this like state in India, right? And this directly correlates to what we were reading from Marta harnaker where where you can only see part of the state, right? It's not like all of India is, you know, <laughs> under this like elected government. It's just this one state. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it's not a great analog, but it's like if there was a Lenin in Ohio. Um, <laughs> but like the the key here is that you know the communists were elected in this one particular state and they had sort of like some say over the government there, right? And like we also were mentioning earlier, there's lots of ping pong back and forth. There's sort of like, you know, different parties that that ebb and flow. There's sometimes when, you know, the communists don't get elected and that's a whole thing. But what they do is really fascinating. And instead of building a giant governmental bureaucracy, they start this campaign, the People's Planning Campaign, that provides a framework for how politics are going to work in Kerala uh, no matter who's in charge. Right. So regardless of, of whether the communists are in charge or not, the the people's planning campaign creates a, a sort of a, an infrastructure so that there is a way that democracy happens in Kerala and um, in and, and regardless of who's in power. I mean, like that matters for sure. But the, the basic framework will still kind of be there. It's kind of baked into the, the, the political structures of the state. And um, in, in a certain way of thinking, like that makes socialism a little bit undefeatable, right? Even if the, even if the government is, uh, even if the communists, even if the socialists, even if the LDF is not in charge, there's still a sense in which the people have a whole lot of power to do what it is they want to do.
1: I think that is what's so fascinating about the model. So in the history of communism and socialism, the states that last tend to be the ones that have, you know, a a big one party state that uh, makes everything go the way it goes. And some of them are more participatory than others. You know, Cuba, for instance, has like a very participatory democracy, even though it's a one party state, um, as opposed to others that are maybe harder to parse out. What is so fascinating about Kerala is they they can't rely on having a monopoly of political power. In fact, they know basically that once they're in office, their their victory is going to be very fragile and they're probably going to be out of office. So they only have, you know, X amount of years to get something done and then they're going to wait around. And so this kind of solution or this idea for the People's Planning Campaign, um, it came about in the 90s, and it's very, very radical. So the idea is, like Matt was just saying, they've only captured part of the government. They don't have the federal government, which is actually quite antagonistic to Kerala in a lot of different ways. Um, And not only under the the left-wing governments, just in general, because India is a big country <laughs> with a lot of things happening. Um, and uh, and in some ways, the federal government can be friendly to the left-wing governments at different points. I don't know. It's a long, complicated story, like Matt was saying. But um, you know, the fact is, they, they have these kind of like ceilings of limitation. So the solution, if you can't build a big state and you can't have a one-party rule over that state or whatever, what are you supposed to do? The solution was almost to go in the opposite direction. So they allocated uh, between 30 and 40% of uh, state funds to go directly to local governments. And then they created a process by which uh, people are organized into different assemblies. We'll maybe talk about the process in a minute. Um, But then they, from those kind of identified needs, end up basically uh, having those funds given to them from the state government to do what they think they should do in the community. So it was introduced under a left-wing government in the 90s but then it continued to survive even as left-wing governments came in and out of power. And uh, it's such a fascinating thing because the the ultimatum, I guess, that the infrastructure offers is like... Uh, or not the ultimate, but I guess it, it calls the bluff of kind of even right wing parties, right? If the idea is to shrink the government or whatever, it's like, are you really going to take away local people's ability to determine for themselves what they need to get done in their community uh, and to give over state funds to those efforts? So um, in a weird way, it's like the most fragile piece of the, the socialist project is also the most uh, resilient. And I think it's such an interesting lesson in that way.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, there's something kind of algorithmic about it, where it's just like, these are the rules to our government, and we've created, we've kind of, you know, set it out here. And uh, maybe the people in charge, they'll change places, but this, like, the fundamental rules can't be. Like, the fundamental Mm -hmm. rules of Kerala um, are such that, you know, the people have to be in charge, the people have to be making these decisions. Unless, like, you know, unless another huge societal transformation came and changed it all, which is possible, but, like, it'd be a big problem <laughs> you know it's not like it could yeah. happen overnight um yeah well here's here's another bit i guess that's kind of an important piece here from the thomas isaac book that we've been talking about he writes from the outset the people's planning campaign demarcated itself from neoliberal decentralization programs that were being advocated by international agencies like the world bank as part of their structural adjustment programs local pre- Local planning and not the free market was the central fulcrum around which the decentralization in Kerala unfolded. Devolution can be a strategic response of the affirmative democratic state to the neoliberal onslaught. So this is important because decentralization can have different types of character, right? Like in Kerala, the decentralization that's happening is, like I said a minute ago, and I kind of like this analogy, but it's like a kenosis of the government into the people. Uh It's emptying out all of the things that governments do and kind of handing it over to the people's planning campaign. It's like all these different um local bodies are are now going to start doing the things that the government did do. And that's markedly different than a type of neoliberal decentralization, which would you know, which empties out the government and instead of giving the powers and responsibilities to the people they give them to, like uh, Lockheed Martin or whatever, mm-hmm. right or uh, or some other like big corporation, some kind of private the privatization of uh, of public goods. that's still decentralization. It just sucks a lot. Mm-hmm. So th- this other type of decentralization though, giving it to people is uh, pretty profoundly awesome uh, because, you know it doesn't it doesn't matter what the market says. Uh, it doesn't matter if, um, you know, like, if the market says uh, the most profitable thing is to privatize your water, um, it doesn't matter in Kerala because local planning takes precedent over that. And if the people of Kerala don't want their water privatized, it will not be. And that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And it's great to pull out the difference between uh, the international pressures, too, because you um, the like we've talked about on this podcast before the World Bank, the IMF, these other international bodies, what they want in the global south is to make the whole world smoother for capital flows, right? Um, that's the the modus operandi of these kind of international capitalist schemes is to allow capital to come back to the global north as quickly and easily as possible and to extract as much as they can. And so the way that they do that is they offer all kinds of loans and, and monies to poorer countries in the global south or developing countries. And the strings attached are that in order to receive the money they have to privatize a bunch of stuff so maybe the maybe they already have a robust education system or healthcare or public transit is usually a big one um the strings attached will be you have to privatize that or eliminate state funding and it you know the the what you get in return so the theory goes right is access to foreign capital Um, you get access to foreign investment and the hope is that that kind of capital and investment will then give you a a bigger base on which you can develop your society and you know surprise decades later that has not been the case in the (laughs) global south Um, and so what's really neat about this experiment is it's the (laughs) I guess kind of accepting that they're not really going to ever have the means to create a more centralized structure and so the way to resist neoliberal decentralization is to just do it on purpose and do it with thought and do it in a way that doesn't prioritize making the world uh smoother for capital but rather uh, making it more textured in a local way right um giving people uh, it it basically is making a bet that if you give people participatory power they'll want to keep it as opposed to the neoliberal bet, which is uh, you know if you basically outsource <laughs> all of the uh, the profits or or uh, labor that you can, um, then uh, people will eventually magically sort of benefit from it and uh, and want to keep it, which of course they don't. So it's a, a really cool challenge to like international development policy in general.
0: Yeah, you know the 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 local planning part of it to me is so cool because there's something so fundamentally like unobjectable to it you know because it's just like you could ask anybody on the planet well i mean i think you can ask most people on the planet at least you know do you want more of a say what happens in your local community or would you want less and like i think most everyone's gonna say yeah i would like more and then you can swoop in and say well listen i know some socialists who want to make that happen for you (laughs) i think that's awesome i mean i don't know um it challenges the narrative of the the you know the big government socialist who wants to uh i don't know um, do all kinds of things uh in a bureaucratic way um <laughs> I don't know it, but it, there there's a type of power and a type of freedom in there that I think it really appeals to people who probably aren't even socialists or wouldn't even mm-hmm. think of themselves as like that at all, so I don't know, yeah, um,
1: that's even a a major piece of the campaign, right uh Isaac says in order to get this going, they had to have buy-in from opposition parties. And I think that is also very funny. They just like invited the opposition to help them figure out how do we do this. And of course, not every local government is a left wing government. And so there's all these kind of problems, but it really is like a deep kind of faith in the the ability of participatory democracy to to win out and outlast uh, those challenges, which is a pretty huge gamble. I mean, yeah. it's the gamble that the left has never wanted to take and and rarely takes for reasons that do make sense. Like I want to make that clear. <laughs> like um, it makes a lot of sense that you don't do that in a number of countries, right? But uh, to do it in a place like Kerala is such a, a cool thing, such a cool experiment to to basically invite the possibility of losing <laughs> your spot in the government, but uh, knowing that nevertheless the kind of seeds that you planted are you're going to be able to reap them the next time you're in government that's pretty cool
0: yeah yeah i agree um okay well you might be thinking hey podcast guys this sounds so interesting to me but does it work does is kerala a place that you'd want to to live and the answer is yes it's good it works (laughs) um in the thomas isaac's book he has a whole bunch of charts that i think are pretty interesting um there's one that catches my eye every time I look through the book and it's called the comparison of social indicators of Keral- of Kerala and India. Um and it's a chart that lists 1951, 2001 and 2021. Sort of as like the these like benchmark times or check-in times. And then the chart kind of just lists like the literacy rate, the infant mortality rate, the maternal mortality rate, life expectancy, a handful of other things, right? And it's kind of comparing how uh Kerala how Kerala looks uh, with regards to these statistics and how India looks and like in all of these categories Kerala is always kind of like better off than the rest of the country for example in 2021 77 percent of the population of India was literate but in Kerala it's 96 percent the infant mortality rate is seven against 32 in the rest of India so it's just like you know these like statistics they demonstrate that the people's planning campaigns, I think work, I mean, you know, whatever, I'm not a a statistician or social scientist. So maybe there's like some nuance here. But I guess I think generally, it shows a quality of life that there's uh, through local planning, there's a sense uh, that uh, that Kerala is kind of better off than other places in India, which is quite interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, It's also interesting, because Kerala is not a super wealthy state in India, either. It is historically very poor. It is mostly agrarian. And even still, it has not uh, like it, Isaac says, like it has struggled to basically find its own productive path forward. It struggles
0: with unemployment even.
1: Right. Like yeah. Not even everyone has a job. Like mass unemployment, like big time (laughs) unemployment. Uh, And that is also really astounding. I mean, to be able to achieve all that kind of stuff uh, while also dealing with, um, you know, real, real, like if you don't have a big productive economy, um, and especially if you're like a primarily agrarian economy right now in the world, that is very bad, (laughs) very bad for you, Um, especially if you're a capitalist uh, state. So, yeah, it's cool to see those statistics with everything stacked against Kerala
0: totally we need to talk about the religious angle here in a minute but before yeah. we do dean can you can you just walk us through quickly the um the participatory planning part
1: yes okay there is a moment where as a identifies six phases he doesn't number them super well so (laughs) we might get them wrong but here's what we could sort of uh parse out or abstract from it so here are the six phases of these local plans you might be asking how does it work and they do these plans every year once a year so the full year is like making the plan and also implementing it and then they do another one and there have been 25 years of doing this so far so here's how it works First, the people themselves identify issues in their local region through community assembly, assemblies called Grama gramasabas, I, I think. That's what they're called, how you pronounce them. In any case, local communities, they identify their problems together. Second, the needs that get identified are prioritized by different delegates from those assemblies, and then resources the, and sort of problems like are kind of identified early on, like how would we have trouble maybe meeting these needs. So third, there's a task force that's assembled to create different prioritized proposals for projects that come out of those needs. Fourth, there's a plan document that also has financial analysis and strategies for fundraising, including the funds they can count on from the state government and also funds they can get from anywhere else, from NGOs to, you know, somewhere else. Uh, fifth, they have a, a voluntary technical core that uh, it's basically like a group of volunteer experts who review all these plans, which is also pretty amazing. So they smooth out issues and you know try to identify things that are achievable or not. And then lastly is the participatory implementation of the process. And that is also very interesting because so once they've got the whole plan, they have plans for these projects. Um, the people who are responsible for carrying out the plan are also not just the state government which doesn't have the capacity to do that necessarily but it could be anybody from the church Isaac mentions to an NGO to a local government themselves to a, a local you know neighborhood assembly essentially so um, whoever can pitch in to get it done gets it done so those are the six phases from people identifying their needs to then uh, getting those needs met through funded projects uh, pretty cool stuff I should add too, um, there is a great book by Marta Harniker we've mentioned on the show as well called Planning from Below from the Monthly Review. Uh, it is a really neat look. Um, Harniker and a co-author, whose name I'm forgetting right now, they look at uh, Kerala and Venezuela and they try to sort of put together like, what if you did this in your community? What would it actually look like? So you can maybe have a look at that if you want to read a bunch of charts it's <laughs> about <like> a, budgets.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. The book is like, it's kind of a textbook about how you would like, how you would participatory plan a park with your community or something it's Mm -hmm. it's not the most exciting read if you're looking for revolutionary socialist literature that's going to get you fired up this isn't it but if you want (laughs) to if you want a book that tells you how to how to make a park with the people that live around you this is the one to get pretty cool um the, another thing to note, too, about all of those phases, there's also, like, training involved in all of them. So, it's, like, everybody knows, like, what's going on in the process. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, like, such a bizarre thing to think about because, like, I've been <laughs> I've been emailing my uh, city councilor for the last year and a half about, <laughs> like, a, like, a traffic light. And, like, I've never heard back from them. And uh, meanwhile, there are people uh, who are getting stuff done in their communities and they, like, are in control of it. And it's kind of amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah well uh lots more that we could say about Kerala and lots more that you can read about in this book but I agree Matt we should turn toward the end here uh to some Christian stuff so it's not just subsidiarity we're not just reaching here Uh, Kerala (laughs) is a really interesting uh state because it also has a pretty significant population of Christians and they have ranged from uh generally very (laughs) anti-communist as you could guess at certain points in history to also having a pretty impressive contingent of uh, liberation theology inspired folks Uh, Isaac actually kind of downplays them I think wrongly Uh, but there are a ton of really interesting folks I mean they're a minority strand for sure but also a very important one Um, so one person for instance that I've been reading lately is a guy named Sebastian Kappen K-A-P-P-E-N and actually, if you're interested in extremely niche Jesuit literature from Kerala, India, you can buy these books. Um, they're from what is the name of this place? ISPCK. Um, ISPCK. Just search that and cap in Capin, and there's a handful of volumes of essays by him. Uh, so he was a Jesuit liberation theologian. You can buy these books for cheap from India. And uh, they're basically a bunch of essays he wrote in like the 60s, 70s and 80s. So as the government was kind of flip flopping between left and right, um, and he's sort of thinking through what does it mean to be a Christian, thinking about the poor, Uh, he had written a dissertation on Marxism. So thinking with that tradition as well, what does it mean to be a Christian in Kerala, as all these processes are kind of materializing. And I thought I'd read just uh, two really interesting quotes. So In this essay he wrote called Church and the Challenge of Social Revolution in Kerala in a book called Jesus and Freedom, he says, It's perhaps here that we should seek the reason why precisely in Kerala, where there's a socially dominant Christian community, we find also the strongest communist movement of India. Communism breeds on the Christian impotence to bridge the gulf between theory and praxis. Hence, the need for a concerted attempt to make the message of the gospel practically relevant to the aspirations of the poor for more human and humane conditions of life. And what uh, Kapan is saying more broadly in this essay is like (laughs) communism has emerged in Kerala precisely because Christians just can't deliver. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. they say they care about the poor. But guess what? Everyone in Kerala is poor and it doesn't seem to be changing. And he kind of has this really interesting calculus where he's like, whether you like communists or not, um, they're probably going to be the ones to lead the masses in Kerala. And the church has to decide if they want to lose all their members to the Communist Party or if they want to find a way of kind of having a more creative dialogue with it. Um, So maybe I'll what do you think about that, Matt? I'm going to pause there because I'm talking a lot and then I'll read one more maybe quote on this.
0: It's cool. He's right. It's good. (laughs) that's what i think
1: (laughs) yeah okay all right well let me read this other piece and uh we can just chat about it for a moment so uh capon says you know there's these kind of two paths open to the church like it can either be virulently anti-communist and try its best to care for the poor without the communist party and you know good luck is kind of what he says (laughs) (laughs) but um he says there's this other path that is kind of interesting which isn't just like throwing in completely with the communists but doing something else so he says uh any Christian action should include within its scope some form or other of collaboration with the communists. Neither will occasional selective collaboration with communists without creating an alternative democratic revolutionary movement be fully satisfactory from the Christian point of view. And so what he means by that is like, we should work with the communists, but also create a a broader kind of democratic front, Um, which, you know, whatever you could agree or disagree with that. Uh, But he goes on to say, um, uh, Christians should form a democratic revolutionary front with the adherence of other religious believers based on commonly shared ideals. On the other hand they should offer a critical collaboration to the Communist Party. They should judge each measure, each program sponsored by the communists on its own merits and offer or withhold support according to whether the objectives aimed at and the means to be employed align with their demands of justice and equality. And what's interesting about Kappen is uh, he, you know, he's trying to hold these at, at kind of both arms length I guess. Uh, On the one hand, he doesn't want like a, you know, Christian separatist revolutionary moment in Kerala. Um, But he also doesn't want to say that we should just sort of uncritically join the Communist Party uh, and its initiatives either. Um, And there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Like the Communist Party of India Marxist was very powerful in Kerala, but also had led to some disillusionment in Kerala too, because like, they would come into government they would get some things done, then they would get booted out. And that kind of cycle creates a lot of like participation fatigue. So really what Kappen is saying is, you know, we should uh, see the Communist Party as like the right way to sort of lead the masses for now, but also be willing to be like, we might need to do something more because maybe they're sort of too caught up in, in this electoral process and we need a deeper a deeper transformative change. So anyway, super fascinating character, Sebastian Kappen. Um, he's the guy I keep telling everyone to read these days. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting, interesting approach, right? Uh, critical engagement, um, critical support, but also, you know, not being, uh, not being too overzealous, by just throwing in with them. Uh, I think that's fair enough. Um, especially for an organization the Catholic Church that is like broadly anti-communist. Pretty good. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So uh, we've got Cap in here writing liberation theology stuff, right? Um, about uh, a way to engage with, with the communists in Kerala. And I think that's really interesting. Um, though <laughs> there's all kinds of other examples where uh, where uh, s- some pretty radical clergy, some priests and nuns in, in the Catholic Church, uh they they do a little bit more than just sort of like critical support <laughs> i guess is what, <laughs> maybe the way to put it uh so i'm going to read this piece here this is from an article in india today from 1984 um, about uh, a sort of like political uh conflict called the fisherman agitation i mean i don't know all the details of the story because again i'm just a guy on a podcast but uh i can kind of set the story up a little bit here so kerala is a coastal region in india it has like a giant coastal area it's a big waterfront and because of that there's a lot of fishermen um so the government of the time which was not the the communist party it was different people um a coalition of sort of like center parties um they were i mean basically what it comes down to as far as i understand it at least they were trying to like overfish um the coastal regions with some like sort of mechanized means um the fishermen were trying to put a stop to that they wanted to have sort of like a period of time during the year where they did not fish like three months. They didn't, they didn't fish so the fish could repopulate. Um, and I don't know, they just weren't having it. Uh, governments are gonna government, right? The uh, the fishermen weren't being heard. And that is a huge problem. So that led to this, this uh, whole scenario, the fisherman agitation. Uh, so I'm going to read this bit here from the magazine. I think it kind of does a pretty good job of laying some of this out. Um, so here it is. The Fisherman's Agitation, which is led by Father Thomas Cochiri of the Redemptorist Father's Order, has bewildered the politicians and the church hierarchy of the state. Cochiri has organized the fishermen under um, a a different organization uh, full of words I can't pronounce because of my dumb American brain, uh, under the acronym AKSMTF. He is aided by a group of militant Catholic priests and nuns, Sister Alice, one of the nuns, has begun a hunger strike, and then there's other women um, in and priests in different regions who are uh, who are fasting, who are doing the hunger strike. Uh, it says also uh, recently fisherwomen and nuns paralyzed road and rail traffic near Travandam, which is a place in India, for hours in support of the AKSMTF demands. The involvement of the clergy has embarrassed both the chief minister who handles the fisheries portfolio as well as the traditionally anti-communist church, which supports his government. The powerful Catholic bishops' conference, which has so far maintained a studied silence on the subject, has begun a conclave to discuss the religious fallout of the agitation. The divisive efforts here of the Latin Catholic bishops have resulted in bloody clashes, they say. Um, At present, the Cochiri group is better organized and is also alleged to be more violent. Accusations that his behavior is not fitting for a man of the cloth are brushed aside by Kochiri. He says, "I may stand for a leftist ideology, but that does not mean I'm an atheist. The priests and nuns who are with me are not only religious but also duty bound to these poor fishes to these poor fishermen." Kochiri is known in the coastal villages as Naxalachan, who, which means Naxalite father, which is sort of a reference to, to like an insurgent group. Um, in, in india it also claims that his organization is actually just a trade union of all fishermen in the state so okay on the one hand we've got critical support from sebastian capan uh which is uh, a good note i think but then also um this is what critical support maybe sometimes looks like right <laughs> a real man of the people a really man uh, a man of the fishermen um who's uh, ready to kind of throw in with people who the government is happy to ignore so i don't know pretty cool uh Thomas Isaac downplays and uh, sometimes kind of paints the picture of the of the church in Kerala as sort of antagonistic only. But uh, sometimes they were antagonistic to people who weren't communists. And that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, it probably is true. I think it is true. Uh, Even Sebastian Kampen complains about it, that the church as a whole was anti-communist in Kerala. Totally. Yeah. Um, And there's lots of other things going on, like, I mean, actually Isaac talks a lot about some of the religious demographic makeup of the state, because there's lots of stuff going on with caste divisions and uh, you know um, there's a sizable Muslim population there as well so lots of stuff going on Uh, but uh, anyway really interesting though to note that you know there's I guess unsurprisingly right you're gonna find militant priests everywhere in the global south (laughs) and nuns and sisters uh, around these time periods and uh, Isaac says too he credits like the church and other organizations with really laying a lot of the civil society groundwork um, that the people's planning process required later on. Um, so that's really neat. But uh, including, I think, you know, building big unions of fisher folk and all that kind of stuff. So that is very cool to see for sure. Um, there's also uh, maybe something to be said too about the development of the CPIM um that's the so CPIM, by the way, it's called that because there was like a split between the Communist Party of India and then the Communist Party of India Marxists. There's also a bunch of Maoists running around. It's a, a big country with a lot of stuff happening. So anyway, the CPIM Uh, they're the ones who we're talking about basically here. Uh, They've had a really interesting development on religion as well. So they, I think, I don't know, I was doing a little research like they do have some anti-religious rhetoric in their history for sure Um, and Cap'n complains about it a bunch in his essays that he's like, I'm trying to work with these these folks but also they're like not helping me out (laughs) by saying all this dumb stuff about religion. Um, But uh, the party itself has evolved quite a bit over the years and there have even been quite a lot of uh, Christian members of the CPIM. Um, You know, people pulled from Christian communities, uh, which is very significant. Um, Isaac mentions a few of them, too. Uh, But even more recently, in the last election, the uh, voter share among Christians went up um, for the CPIM in like the most recent 2021 election. Something like 39% or something like that yeah exactly 39 um which again not a huge majority but still very significant uh,
0: yeah a sizable minority which is great yeah
1: Yeah, so it's cool to see both the parties developing and maybe even, you know, who knows what the future will be like, but even the Christian community in Kerala is developing on that as well. So and if you like Google around, you can find all kinds of there's like a handful of bishops who are friendly with the CPIM. Um, There are some like Christian candidates who run explicitly as Christians for the CPIM. So it's also a really interesting place with some experiments in like Christian Marxist dialogue today in the 21st century, which yeah. is fun to see. We don't talk about that very much these yeah. days.
0: Well, next time somebody tells you that uh, Christians can't be socialists or something bonkers like that, say, I can tell you about a place where 39% of Christians (laughs) voted for for a socialist party for a (laughs) a left democratic front. And that's pretty wild, huh? For real. Um, Cool. Well, we have all this stuff here and like, I don't really know what to say what we should do with it other than I think it's like pretty exciting and very fun to know about. I mean, we have some stuff here about, uh, you know, how, how Christians have kind of engaged with Uh, communist parties in India. And that's cool. We have a lot of neat stuff about participatory planning. I don't know, Dean, what can we make of all this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what I always make of stuff like this is um, the Global South is not a repository of universal lessons for socialism, for sure. I don't think you could just do Kerala in whatever, Michigan, (laughs) right? Ohio. Yeah, exactly. Ohio. Uh, But Um, There are, nevertheless, a lot of principles and experiments that I think we can learn from in the Global North, and it's important to recognize that the people in the Global South are um you know they struggle with all kinds of impediments to progress and all that kind of stuff but even with all of that going on they've outpaced uh, everybody else in terms of uh, you know real democratic alternatives and i guess that's the question for me like when we think as christian people maybe as catholics about a thing like solid, you know subsidiarity or as socialists about how are we going to get people on board with a project like this um it's good to know that like we don't have to reinvent the wheel we kind of have to like apprentice ourselves to the people who are already doing it and then figure that piece out.
0: Yeah. I like that way of thinking about it, apprenticing ourselves to people who are already doing it. You know, to me, it just helps me think of like the ways that socialism actually functions or like maybe like what the goals of socialism are. Um, I had a professor in grad school who would always be like, well, what's socialism? I guess just break the, break the word down. Right. It's a, it's a government that hinges on the social and like, you know, if you read Marx or whatever, you get that idea generally speaking. But I think like in in stuff like participatory planning or 21st century socialism, I think it comes through even stronger. Like the whole point of this governmental arrangement is to give people power, to give like the the social power over production. Um And I don't know that seems pretty powerful. And and when you put it that way, I feel like it's far less objectionable to people who don't really know what they're talking about. You know, it sounds Mm -hmm. it sounds um, more palatable to them that like, well, what you want to do is empower (laughs) empower them and empower their community to like make decisions for themselves. That's Mm -hmm. pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and the lesson of Kerala, too, is they had to get buy-in from people who are not socialists, from people who are anti-communist, right? So that was the whole problem that they were trying to solve. And it's like you are saying, Matt, I think that kind of rhetoric works well, especially in a place like the US or in Canada, where... Um, you know, are, when you walk up to somebody and you say, what if socialism was about you and your neighbors deciding what should happen in your community instead of all those dang Washington elites, you yeah. know, <laughs> like that's the idea. It's an argument for the devolution of the state, but, uh, the devolution of it into, uh, democratic structures and institutions, not into the wild west of, you know, neoliberalism. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, it's exciting stuff. So go tell your neighbors what if socialism was just you and me making decisions for ourselves <laughs> and just see what they say. A yeah well, it just okay just go to your neighbor and say hey do you want to make a budget with me that's socialism <laughs> and see what they say they'll be like very excited about it i think
1: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The And we'll use that money to make our big budget for funding the one of Ohio to deliver us all uh, in a participatory way in the Midwest. Um, you can find us on social media. Uh, let's see. If you support us on Patreon at $2 or more, you can also join a Discord where we're talking even more about all this kind of stuff. Our music is by Amari Armstrong, our intro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week.
0: I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church, we'll meet down by the riverside. Then we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord